0: The relationship between being sick and doing crime, whether that be physical or psychiatric illness, is a large topic of debate in the Western world. This topic comes up every time the United States has another mass shooting. It came up during recent discussions of automatism as a defense in the Canadian criminal justice system. And it comes up when pro athletes commit violent crimes after career long episodes of repeated blows to the head. This kind of thing happens a lot more than anyone would like to think. People in contact sports such as American football and boxing suffering from multiple concussions resulting in dramatic changes to their brain. For many professional athletes, including Chris Benoit, Jovan Belcher, Philip Adams, and Aaron Hernandez, careers in contact sports manifested as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. The sheer damage done to each of their brains has stunned physicians, sports enthusiasts, and criminologists alike. Today, we're going to dive into each of their stories, their early lives, their sports careers, and the horrific crimes they each committed before being posthumously diagnosed with CTE. We're going to talk about what CTE even is, and we're going to talk about how much of their actions might have had something to do with the damage in their brain. As well, I want to talk about what the advent of CTE actually means for the future of contact sports and the future of criminal law. I think we've got a lot to cover today, so with that, it's a good time to jump right in. In case you've never heard of Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, or CTE, it's a progressive brain disease that is thought to be caused by repeated blows to the head. It's a condition that is often associated with contact sports, again such as American football, boxing, sometimes even hockey, and it often results from athletes accumulating concussions or head injuries over time. Before CTE was clinically understood, it was anecdotally referred to as quote unquote, punch drunk in professional boxers who started exhibiting symptoms resembling drunkness after one too many hits to the face. That's just what people started to call it. And the symptoms of drunkenness that I'm talking about, I'm sure some of you recognize memory loss, mood swings, lack of inhibition, or problems with impulse control, having trouble walking, slurred speech, aggression, and confusion. But what we now know is that punch drunk is not an acute illness, but one that progresses throughout a person's life. It's the result of the brain being so damaged that it's unable to tell the body to work properly, and the damage worsens with each hit, resulting in tremors, difficulty eating in some cases, chronic pain, sleep problems, and a severely decreased quality of life. CTE happens in stages, beginning with short-term memory loss, confusion, mild depression, and ending in severe aggression, paranoia, and often difficulties executing any task requiring language or movement. It can be debilitating. It's one of those all-consuming diseases that can drive someone to suicide, which is something we have seen a lot, especially in professional athletes. CTE sounds like the type of disease that progresses throughout a person's entire life. It sounds like someone who enters a contact sport at age seven and then retires as a professional at 45. But don't let the term progressive fool you into thinking the development of this disease is slow or painless. The youngest person to ever die from complications associated with CTE was a 17-year-old boy named Nathan Stiles. Nathan was the star running back of his Kansas high school football team. During his final game, Nathan would collapse in the middle of the football field, screaming that his head hurt before closing his eyes and simply never opening them again. After Nathan's death, his brain was sent to where a lot of professional athletes go, the Virginia Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy Brain Bank, to be analyzed by the world expert on CTE, Dr. Anne McKee. Dr. McKee said that with Nathan's brain, given he was only 17 years old, she expected a relatively pristine brain. She might have anticipated a few signs of head injury over the years given he was a football player and he did have documented concussions. However, what Dr. McKee found with Nathan Stiles and his 17-year-old brain was quite the opposite of pristine and it was a far cry from a few signs of trauma. Dr. McKee told CNN that she was stunned at how similar Nathan's brain was to professional boxers that live into their 70s, and that Nathan's brain was riddled with something called tau proteins. Tau proteins are a group of six protein forms that differ depending on how the gene that makes them is cut or spliced while the protein is being made in your body. Tau proteins do serve a purpose. They are supposed to stabilize networks of something called microtubules, which are long structural chains that hold the shape of your cells together. But tau proteins can become diseased, and they can aggregate together and form large, insoluble clumps of debris and junk in the brain. This is often seen in patients who have severe Alzheimer's disease, and it's not entirely understood why this happens. But after only a few years in American football, at 17 years old, Nathan Stiles' brain was riddled with aggregate diseased tau proteins, resembling that of an elderly Alzheimer's patient. Additionally, something seen in both CTE and Alzheimer's is atrophy of the brain or brain shrinking, which results in an enlargement of the fluid passages in the brain called ventricles, making the brain look a lot different than it's supposed to and no doubt affecting its function. Unfortunately, there is no way to concretely diagnose someone with CTE before their death. You can only find out for sure that someone has it during autopsy and further examination. This makes getting treatment incredibly difficult, especially because some of the symptoms of CTE, like mild depression or confusion, can seem kind of innocuous. And even though there are dramatic changes to the brain that happen with CTE, it's not always that doctors can see those changes when they look at your brain. In Nathan Stiles' case, after his last documented concussion, he received a CT scan and was eventually even given the green light to start playing football again after three weeks. What they didn't know was that his brain was very much not okay and that he would die shortly after. But doctors couldn't have known how badly damaged Nathan Stiles' brain was, and the consequences of that were deadly, just as they were for the family of Chris Benoit. As someone who's not a big sports fan, even I knew who Chris Benoit was. To say that he was a successful professional wrestler would be a total understatement to his achievements as an athlete. Christopher Benoit was born in Montreal, Quebec in Canada, and he would grow up in Edmonton, Alberta. Even as a child, he very quickly grew to idolize wrestling legends and began attending local wrestling matches where it was clear that not only did he like to watch the sport, but he was a natural at it. Once a young Chris Benoit began training in his teen years, he began to emulate a very brute force-like, high-risk style of wrestling. And it was one that caught a lot of people's attention. It was daring. Chris's talent would eventually land him a place in the WWE spotlight, as well as 22 championship titles. Chris would be a two-time world champion wrestler, a one-time world champion wrestling heavyweight champ, and the WWE heavyweight champ. At the time of his death, Chris Benoit's career was nowhere near supposed to be ending. And in fact, the night he died, he was scheduled to win another world championship for the WWE. The list of titles and accomplishments that Chris had throughout his wrestling career on Wikipedia is truly fascinating. By no shortage of the definition, was Chris Benoit a true legend? Unfortunately, it will be forever tainted by his crimes." Despite all of the fame and success, Chris Benoit was never one to let it soil his kind heart. According to his friends and family, Chris was a gentle and kind person. Despite being six foot tall and 229 pounds, he didn't look very gentle, but he certainly was. He was a frequent volunteer with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and his modest, kind-hearted nature is certainly interesting to juxtapose next to his conduct in the ring. Like I mentioned, his wrestling style was brute force, high impact, high risk. Chris Benoit had a signature finishing move called the Crippler Crossface, used to immobilize his opponents, as well as another move consisting of three suplexes, where Chris Benoit would pick up an opponent and throw them over their head onto their back. These trademark maneuvers have been mimicked and modified by several other professional and amateur wrestlers, but Chris had a third classic finishing move that he would use in the ring, a diving headbutt. When Chris was about to execute a diving headbutt, he would climb to the top of the wrestling ring ropes and jump from the top, landing headfirst on his opponent. It looks about as intense as it sounds. As a result of this move and every other hit to the head that Chris took over the course of his career, he would suffer more concussions than he could even count. Outside of wrestling, in the early 2000s, Chris Benoit was on his second marriage. Him and his first wife, Martina, separated in 1997 after sharing two kids together. In February of 2000, him and his second wife, Nancy, would have Chris's third child together, a boy named Daniel. This little family of three shared a home in Fayetteville, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, while his former wife, Martina, and two other children stayed back in his hometown in Canada. Nancy and Chris certainly had their issues, and in 2003, their marriage reportedly fell apart with Nancy calling it quote-unquote broken beyond repair, citing allegations of cruel treatment and violent outbursts by Chris. However, despite Nancy filing for separation as well as filing for a restraining order, both of those claims would actually be dropped and the couple would continue living together in Fayetteville with their son, Daniel. The public didn't know that the couple was struggling. They didn't know that they were struggling in their marriage and they didn't know that Chris Benoit was struggling with his outbursts, struggling with his emotions. To the outside world, It seemed like Chris Benoit was living the American dream. And in 2007, he was set to further accumulate world-renowned accolades. Another championship title was calling his name. But all that glitter isn't gold. Chris Benoit was struggling. Over the years, as a professional wrestler, taking multiple blows to the head from swan diving, hits from chairs that were used as props in the wrestling ring, it had all done a lot of damage to his brain. Chris's brain had actually atrophied or shrunken quite a bit, enlarging those fluid-filled ventricles I talked to you about earlier, and the damage disrupted every single major area of Chris's brain. Over time, tau proteins began to aggregate and settle and continue to accumulate. But it was only in the first half of 2007 when people began to notice that Chris was actually not doing well. His father, Michael Benoit, says that around this time, in the first half of 2007, he definitely knew that something was wrong with his son. Chris was not a religious person. He was not raised that way and never expressed a desire to follow any religion. However, for the months leading up to June of 2007, Chris Benoit was walking around his house wearing a rosary, a beaded necklace used by Catholics as they follow a set of prayers along each bead. Chris wasn't acting like himself. For the first time, it was more than just the people who lived with him who were starting to see it. Often it was only his wives who would bear the brunt of his unpredictable behavior, but now other people were beginning to notice. At first, people attributed this to roid rage, something that happens when people like Chris Benoit did regularly and liberally use anabolic steroids throughout their athletic careers making them more bulky when people are experiencing quote-unquote roid rage, they're known to act erratically and angry, which is part of the reason why Nancy Benoit almost divorced him. Given his past history using steroids and being somewhat violent and acting oddly, I'm not sure if anyone in Chris's life really thought about exactly why he might have been acting weirdly again in 2007. I do know, however, that They likely never anticipated that whatever it was Chris was going through, it would drive him to commit a violent murder-suicide at only 40 years old. On June 25th of 2007, police in Fayetteville, Georgia would enter the home of Chris Benoit where he lived with his wife, Nancy, and their 7-year-old son, Daniel. This visit came after Chris had missed some WWE event without any notice, and their response was for head office to call in for a welfare check. What the police found upon arrival to Chris's home at around 2.30 p.m. on the 25th were the bodies of himself, his wife, Nancy, and Daniel in the home. Daniel and Nancy were victims of murder, and Chris, having very obviously hanged himself in the weight room of his home, committed suicide. After the initial investigation as to what happened in the Benoit family home in Fayetteville, it had become apparent that Chris Benoit had murdered his family and killed himself over the course of several days. In a series of events completely out of character for chris benoit beginning on june 22nd of 2007 chris benoit bound his wife nancy by her limbs and strangled her to death before wrapping her body in a towel and placing a christian bible next to her their seven-year-old son daniel was found inside of his bedroom also next to a copy of the christian bible Daniel was found with internal bruising in his throat, suggesting that he, too, had also been strangled. The only difference was police had determined Daniel died on the 23rd of June, the day after his mom was killed by his dad. As police worked over the next few days to figure out what happened, they pieced together that on the same day Chris killed his son Daniel on the 23rd of June, he had also called one of his friends, Chavo Guerrero, and told him that Nancy and Daniel had food poisoning so the family would be late to an event that they planned. Guerrero would go on to say that Chris sounded tired and groggy and that his demeanor and tone were pretty concerning. Chavo was so concerned by Chris's demeanor just by the way he was talking that he felt it necessary to express his concerns by saying, All right, man, if you need to talk, I'm here for you. And Chris's last words back to Chavo were, Chavo, I love you, with a distinct, off-sounding, somewhat slurred emphasis. Chris Benoit would then fail to show up for a scheduled airport pickup the next day on June 24th, and that night, he evidently didn't show up for the WWE Night of Champions pay-per-view event in Houston. Instead, Chris was at home, alone, facilitating his own suicide by hanging. And that brings us back to June 25th of 2007, the day Chris and his family were discovered, the day after Chris had killed himself, and the WWE were actually scheduled to have a three hour long Raw showdown, but instead, at the last second, they replaced the broadcast with a tribute to Chris and his career as a wrestler. When the details of the murder-suicide were released to the public, some speculated that it could have been alcohol or drug use that drove Chris to commit such a gruesome crime. Others said that it could have been residual roid rage. However, despite Chris using steroids to stay bulky throughout his entire career, it was actually after the death of a fellow wrestler, a friend named Eddie Guerrero in 2005, when the WWE tightened their expectations for adhering to anti-doping regulations. From the way I understood it, it seemed that people could have possibly just been turning a blind eye if athletes were using anabolic steroids, but after the death of Eddie Guerrero, that was not going to fly anymore. So, Chris gave it up, just like most people did. However, toxicology reports that came out on July 17th of 2007 almost a month after the murder-suicide. It noted that Chris had Xanax, hydrocodone, and elevated levels of testosterone in his body. The medical examiner reported that this could have been a byproduct of treatment from previous steroid abuse resulting in a deficiency from testicular insufficiency, but of course, people speculate that this was evidence of him continuing to use steroids. Daniel, their son, was also found with Xanax in his system, and this is thought to have been from Chris as a way to sedate him before committing the murder of his own son. However, the largest and most shocking conclusion that came out of this toxicology report was that there were no psychogenic drugs in Chris's system or any really volume of substances that could have led to a rage or delusions, As far as toxicology was concerned, Chris Benoit was essentially entirely lucid when he murdered his family. But that might not be entirely true. Former wrestler and friend, Christopher Nowinski, contacted Chris Benoit's father, Michael, after the tragedy and proposed the idea that Chris's repeated career-long episodes of brain trauma could have influenced his actions. Again, Chris maybe had a past of unpredictable behavior, but his outbursts were never this severe, and they were always a byproduct of steroids. Chris wasn't using steroids anymore. Something was seriously wrong, and it was thought that Christopher Nowinski actually might be onto something. As a consequence, Chris's brain was sent over to Dr. Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University. Upon examination, it was clear to Dr. Bales that Chris's brain was in shambles. It was riddled with tau protein aggregates. It was atrophied, it had shrunken, and to Dr. Bales, it resembled that of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient with damage to, again, every part of his brain. Dr. Bales reported that Chris would have likely been struggling with symptoms that resemble dementia and that the extent of the damage throughout Chris's brain could have absolutely led to behavioral issues. Dr. Bales even came out and said that the repeated head trauma Chris endured could have culminated in him killing his family and himself. Later research undertaken by the Sports Legacy Institute, now named the Concussion Legacy Foundation, also suggested the same thing. A combination of depression and severe CTE very well could have caused Chris's extremely odd and violent behavior. And this was nothing to be taken lightly. It was noted that Chris's brain showed one of the worst cases of CTE that modern science had ever seen. This was corroborated by Dr. Robert Cantu, one of the foundation's founders, who has studied the brains of several athletes who've committed suicide at young ages, studying CTE, and saying that Chris's brain was the most extensively damaged of all the brains he's ever seen. Despite the reports conducted by several acclaimed physicians, it remains to be seen if Chris's CTE was the sole contributor or even a conclusive contributor to his actions. Damage of any kind to the brain, especially in the frontal lobe, which is responsible for your inhibition, your expressions, and executive function, can absolutely result in behavioral abnormalities. And at the very least, this was certainly true. Michael Benoit, Chris's dad, found a diary in Chris's home after the murders took place where Chris documented his wayward and convoluted ways of thinking prior to the crime. According to his dad, these diary entries were written by someone who was clearly extremely disturbed. Nobody had any idea, but Chris Benoit was falling apart. And in Michael's eyes, there's no question whether or not the damage that his son took over the years contributed to his actions. Unfortunately, whether it was because of CTE or because Chris Benoit was a natural-born killer, we'll never concretely know. But he did die at only 40 years old, after killing two people that he claimed to love the most in the world. And 40 years old is very early for someone to suffer so deeply from degenerative brain disease. However, it was truly the crimes committed by 25-year-old NFL linebacker Jovan Belcher in 2012 that showed the world exactly how CTE can mutilate the brains of young men that are not even fully developed yet. Born on July 24th in 1987, Jovan Belcher grew up in Long Island, New York, and attended school in West Babylon. Similar to the stories of all the athletes you'll hear me discuss in this episode, it didn't take very long for the people in Jovan's life to realize that he was exceptionally talented in sports. If you don't already know, Jovan would go on to be a professional football player for the Kansas City Chiefs. But even before then, he was a young star named an All-American twice at the University of Maine where he attended. By all accounts, when Jovan was a teenager, everybody knew he was destined for the NFL, and he had an incredibly successful early career to back up those claims. He was even predicted by Sports Illustrated to be in the sixth round of the NFL draft picks in 2009. Jovan would have only been 21 or 22 years old, and this is quite a big deal for a young athlete who was considered to be a small school prospect. Oddly, to everyone's surprise, Jovan was not picked in the 2009 NFL Draft, but instead he would be signed to the Kansas City Chiefs as a free agent in 2010. When he got there, Jovan certainly hit the ground running, and he would become a regular starter as an inside linebacker. And in 2011, Jovan would record over 60 tackles and 26 assists. Jovan was doing a lot for the team, He was taking a lot of hits along the way, but it didn't take very much beyond Jovan's natural abilities for the Kansas City Chiefs to promptly re-sign him for the 2012 season. Despite being undeniably destined for the pro league, Jovan was reportedly always community-oriented and very down to earth. This rang true both at home in New York, but also at his new home in Kansas City. He was big on giving motivational speeches to kids in schools and he would help organize and promote NFL programs for young children to try and get them interested in the sport. He was known as kind and humble with immense gratitude and respect for his family, the same respect he always showed for the members of his community. Those who knew Jovan on a personal level, however, did say that he struggled a bit to have the same respect for the mother of his infant daughter, Cassandra Perkins. In 2012, Cassandra and Jovan were living in Kansas City and the young couple would have their first daughter, Zoe, in September of 2012, when Cassandra was just 22 years old and Jovan was 25. Cassandra was a college student at Blue River Community College, hoping one day to become a teacher and met Jovan through a friend of a friend. Reportedly, their relationship was not smooth sailing, and the two argued quite a bit. Jovan was even apparently seeing another woman in the late months of 2012, but him and Cassandra were tied together with a child. Cheryl Shepard, Jovan's mother, had actually moved in with the young couple once Zoe was born to help out with taking care of her. This was very helpful and very generous given that Cassandra was a young, first-time mom and Jovan was busy and away from home all the time during the NFL season. But despite the extra helping hands, the stress of their relationship didn't seem to subside, and even with Jovan's mother present, him and Cassandra got into explosive arguments that, at times, even involved police there existed a certainly stark duality of Jovan's personality. He was humble and kind, but he was also brooding and angry. The violent side of Jovan wasn't one that a lot of people got to see, but when they did, it was reportedly more frightening than anyone expected, and it certainly seemed to worsen as time went on. There was even reports that Jovan uttered threats about Cassandra behind her back, saying that he would kill her one day. A true debate in this case is whether or not the worsening of Jovan's violent outbursts during arguments with Cassandra can simply be attributed to his increasing frustration with her, or if one can accurately say it's the accumulation of blows to the head that he was suffering as he was playing pro football, blows to the head that were compromising his inhibition, destabilizing his mood, instigating depression, or Maybe it was a combination of all of that. However, despite him and Cassandra having quite a rocky relationship, doesn't seem like anyone was actually ready for Joanne to attempt to execute the threats he made about Cassandra. There were no documented incidences of domestic violence. That was until December 1st of 2012. On November 30th of 2012, Cassandra Perkins went out to a Trey songs concert at the Midland Theater in Kansas City. She would return to her home in the early hours of December 1st. It's unclear exactly why, but when Cassandra returned home, an argument immediately ensued between herself and Jovan. Afterwards, both of them but separately made their way down to the Power and Light District in Kansas City, an entertainment area in the downtown core. Jovan was there with another woman, someone that some reports say he was seriously dating and was separated from Cassandra. Other reports say that he was straight up cheating on Cassandra. It's hard to know for sure. Regardless, Jovan would end up trying to drive back to this other woman's apartment alone. And when he arrived, she, wasn't there. Jovan would find himself just sitting in his car in the parking lot of this woman's apartment building and eventually falling asleep waiting for her. Kansas City police would find him around 3 a.m. after receiving reports of a suspicious man in his car just sitting there sleeping. Jovan told them that he couldn't remember the buzzer of this woman's apartment, who he apparently to police called his girlfriend but he did insist on having a legitimate reason to be there, just that legitimate reason hadn't come home yet. Regardless of his reasons for being in the parking lot, Jovan was told that he can't just be sitting there in his car all night long, but before long, some other residents of the apartment building let him inside and allowed him to stay the night on their sofa. Between 6.30 and 7am on December 1st, Jovan returned home. It didn't take very long before yet another argument ensued between him and Cassandra. This one, again, differs depending on what source you read. Some say Jovan was accusing Cassandra of cheating on him at the Traysongs concert. This hardly makes any sense to me because he had spent the entire night waiting around for another woman. but. Some reports say that Jovan was out of his mind so badly that he was accusing Cassandra of cheating on him with Trey Songz himself. Within the hour of Jovan arriving back home, Kansas City Police would be responding to their residence around 7.50 a.m. after receiving a frantic 911 call from Cheryl, Jovan's mom. At some point during that argument between him and Cassandra on December 1st, Jovan pulled out a handgun and shot Cassandra nine times in the stomach, the legs, her chest, her neck, and her back. Immediately afterwards, Jovan got into his 2007 Bentley and drove about five miles to the parking lot of the Kansas City Chiefs practice facility, right next to the Arrowhead Stadium. If Jovan's friends, family, and closest associates were to be shocked at his actions before leaving the house, they would soon be beside themselves, as calling Jovan's next actions quote-unquote out of character would be a massive understatement. When he arrived at the Kansas City Chief's practice facility, Jovan would exit his car in the parking lot with a second handgun already pointed at his own head. It wasn't long before the Kansas City Chief's general manager, Scott Pioli, met with Jovan outside and very quickly realized the gravity of the situation. Jovan, with the barrel of his gun still to his own temple, openly confessed to Scott Pioli that only minutes before he had murdered Cassandra Perkins. Then, as the chief's owner, Clark Hunt, met with them also outside, Jovan thanked both him and Scott Pioli for supporting him during his career. Jovan didn't have to explicitly state what he was about to do before both Clark Hunt and Scott Pioli were frantically trying to convince him that what he was about to do was drastic, unnecessary, that he could put the gun down and they'd all find a way out of the situation. But as the Chief's head coach, Romeo Crennel, also met with them outside, he would approach just as Jovan was insisting that it was too late, that he quote-unquote can't be here. Then, without missing a beat, Jovan walked back to the side of his car, knelt down, made a sign of the cross with his hand, and shot himself in the head. He died in hospital shortly after arrival. It seemed like the entire United States, and especially those closest to Jovan, had one glaring question as a collective, why? Sure, maybe Jovan had animosity towards Cassandra, their relationship was toxic, but why did he suddenly and without warning kill the mother of his infant daughter before driving to his training facility and kill himself in front of three Kansas City Chiefs executives? To some, it may seem like Jovan killed himself because he was desperate to escape the circumstances he had just created, after killing Cassandra in a violent outburst in front of his own mother. It turns out that in January of 2013, after Jovan's autopsy was conducted, that his blood alcohol content on the night of the murder-suicide was 0.17. Jovan had definitely been drinking the night before. However, in December of 2013, around the one-year mark of the violent incident, Jovan's body was exhumed once again for further research on his brain, after some speculation that his career in pro football could have led to brain damage. To many people, it seemed like being drunk and being stuck in a relationship with a woman he likely didn't want to be with anymore was simply not a good enough explanation for what happened. It didn't take very long after doctors began to take a good look at Jovan's brain where they realized that it showed classic signs of CTE. His fornix or the part of the brain surrounding the fluid-filled areas were atrophied or shrinking and the entire thing was riddled with the tangles of tau proteins. According to Dr. Peter Kozlatsky of the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York City, The bulk of the tau proteins in Jovan's brain were located throughout his hippocampus, an area of the brain associated with memory and emotion. Despite Dr. Kozlowski doing a thorough analysis and finding a very diseased brain in Jovan Belcher's skull that could have very well contributed to the murder-suicide, CTE would not yet make quite the headlines back then as it did in 2017. We'll get there, but back then, CTE wasn't nearly as well understood or recognized amongst professional athletes, at least not amongst the public. Scientists did know about it, but they didn't know how exactly blows to the head over the course of a few years could drastically change the trajectory of someone's life by turning their brain into a malfunctioning lump of matter. But that was until April 19th of 2017, when Aaron Hernandez was found deceased in his jail cell where he was staying after being convicted for the murder of one of his own friends, Odin Lloyd. On November 6th of 1989, Aaron Joseph Hernandez was born in Bristol, Connecticut to parents Dennis and Terry. Aaron has an older brother, Dennis Jr., who often went by DJ, who now goes by Jonathan. The two brothers were reportedly very close and even quote-unquote best friends into adulthood. Aaron, like others I told you about today, was more than just a star athlete in his hometown. He was born to play American football. In his last year at Bristol Central High School, he was named Connecticut's Gatorade footballer of the season. In his first year of college at the University of Florida, he would go on to win the John Mackey Award. An award given to the best tight end in the entire United States. Aaron would then go on to be the tight end for one of the best football teams in the NFL, but we'll get there. Contrary to Aaron's success on the field, his life at home growing up was tumultuous to say the least. His father, Dennis Sr., would allegedly beat Aaron senselessly at almost any opportunity. His brother, Jonathan, even threatened to call police once during an episode of their father's violence. But as survivors of abuse know, that often makes the situation worse, and the threat of police doesn't often intimidate abusers. They have a lot of leverage against their victims, especially when they're their own children. In hindsight, it's interesting, because one large part of Aaron's life was always football. He would be named a first-team All-American by the Associated Press, and he would enter the NFL draft in 2010 before even finishing college. But another part of his life was his family, the unconditional love he had for his brother, the unwavering fear of his father, and eventually the mourning of his father's sudden and unexpected death in 2006 from complications following a routine hernia surgery. Although his family dynamic would change, they always remained tight-knit. But after this happened, Aaron reportedly started hanging around a rough crowd. And so now another part of his life was his sketchy friends. Him and his friends liked to drink and party when Aaron was a teenager. And he found himself getting into trouble quite often despite his pro football prospects. Aaron became gradually a more aggressive dude, and he was known for it, but he was not necessarily known for violence. He was known for an ability to hold his own ground. Whether that turned into violence was a matter of circumstance. When Aaron was 17, he was involved in a bar fight in Gainesville, Florida, after he allegedly didn't want to pay for his drink. He would end up snapping and punch an employee, rupturing their eardrum, who was just trying to escort Aaron out. However, Aaron was also involved in a fight where he was stabbed in the leg at a house party by someone. But instead of releasing his anger and retaliating against this person, like Aaron assuredly could have, he offered his attacker mercy, said, I'll give you five seconds to get the hell out of here and let him run before Aaron started to chase after him, but eventually just let him go. Everyone who was there that night knew that Aaron could definitely take the guy, but it was interesting nonetheless to watch as Aaron deciphered which circumstances warranted aggression and which warranted only a threat. Aaron would play football for the Gators at the University of Florida the entire time he was attending, but in his last year of college, he would announce that he was going to forego his last season. The reason he decided not to play anymore for the Gators was because the stars were aligning for Aaron to be drafted into the NFL, and that's exactly what happened. On April 23rd of 2010, Aaron Hernandez was drafted to the New England Patriots. After what felt like a lifetime of bringing his A-game to the field, finally, Aaron was going pro, and eventually, he would help bring the New England Patriots to the 2012 Super Bowl a game that even I remember watching. However, just as Aaron flip-flopped between being a nice, approachable, bro-y guy to someone akin to violent outbursts, he also flip-flopped between success and problems from the streets he ran after hours. In July of 2012, the same year he went to the Super Bowl alongside Tom Brady, Aaron would end up in a confrontation with several individuals at a bar in Boston and that would change his life forever. Two men, Daniel D'Abru and Safrio Furtado, were at a club with three of their other friends. Aaron, with VIP access, happened to also be in attendance. There's CCTV footage of Aaron at the club being escorted to the VIP section as Daniel Debreu and Safiro, along with their friends, are just paying for their drinks. However, at some point, they would all cross paths with Aaron. A drink would get spilled or thrown in his direction, and by the end of the night, Daniel and Safiro would end up shot to death in a drive-by shooting. Given Aaron's reputation as a force to be reckoned with in the NFL, police would have no idea that they should even connect him to their deaths until well after the murder of someone named Odin Lloyd. Odin Lloyd was born in the Virgin Islands and grew up in Antigua before him and his family moved over to Boston, United States. Odin was known to be street savvy, analytical, bit of a loner, and just like Aaron, remarkably athletic. Odin would go on to be the linebacker for the Boston Bandits, a semi-professional American football team, and in 2012, he was in a relationship with a woman named Shania Jenkins. Shania was the sister of Shayana Jenkins. Shayana was the fiancé of Aaron Hernandez. Evidently, Aaron and Odin knew each other, and I'm sure they bonded somewhat over their shared love of football. There was likely a power dynamic with Aaron being in the NFL as well as becoming increasingly hot-headed and intimidating over the years, but the two were close enough to be riding around in Aaron's car together on June 17th, 2013, however not close enough for Odin to be entirely comfortable with Aaron's celebrity as he made it a point to text his sister saying, guess who I'm with, just so you know. Odin's sister thought that he was bragging about being in the presence of Aaron Hernandez. Others have argued, in hindsight, possibly Odin knew he was in danger. A few days prior to this car ride, Odin and Aaron had been at a nightclub in Boston together. Witnesses say that for some reason, Aaron became visibly frustrated with Odin and ended up walking out. The next time they were seen together, in the early morning hours of June 17th, Aaron and Odin were seen pulling into a secluded gravel pit slash construction area in Aaron's car in the North Attleboro area of Massachusetts. Aaron would end up leaving that area alone. Just over 12 hours later, around 5.30 p.m. on the 17th, a jogger noticed the body of Odin Lloyd in that same gravel pit area, and by that evening, The media had already picked up on the fact that a body had been discovered less than one mile away from the local legend, Aaron Hernandez's own home. Not even 10 days later, on June 26, 2013, Aaron is arrested in his own North Attleboro home and is charged with the first degree murder of Odin Lloyd. What he didn't know was that there was CCTV footage that picked up on him and Odin going to that secluded area, as well there were some of his footprints at the crime scene. Aaron's defense couldn't deny that he was there when Odin died. All they could do was attempt to downplay his involvement in Odin's death. There was no denying he was present and participated to some degree. It's no secret that the star athlete Aaron Hernandez killed someone close to him and his family, his fiance's sister's boyfriend, but why? It turns out that 2013 was a tricky year for Aaron in general, and his arrest was not his first run-in with the police that year. In February 2013, before the murder of Odin Lloyd, after leaving a strip club in Miami, Aaron Hernandez allegedly shot one of his former friends, Alexander Bradley, in the forehead in an obvious effort to kill him before dumping his body off of the I-95 in Florida. Thankfully, Alex Bradley survived and he would go on to file a suit against Aaron for what he attempted to do. Again, though, it raises the question as to why. But in hindsight, it's thought that Aaron Hernandez attempted to kill his friend because Alex Bradley knew something more about the murders of Daniel De Abreu and Cefrio Furtado. Some reports even say that Alex threatened to testify to whatever he knew. And whatever it was, Aaron didn't like that. It's also speculated that this is the same reason as to why at approximately 3.30 a.m. on June 17th of 2013, Aaron Hernandez stood over the incapacitated body of Odin Lloyd and fatally shot him in a gravel pit. People speculate that Odin knew something about the deaths of Daniel and Sefrio. More importantly, he knew about Aaron's connection to those deaths. A connection that I haven't necessarily told you about yet, but it was a connection that the local rumor mill had picked up on quite a while beforehand. Consequently, after the death of Odin Lloyd, investigators were able to connect the dots on their own behalf and began seeking justice for the death of Odin, as well as Daniel and Sefrio. To police, it didn't matter anymore that Aaron Hernandez was a local hero and a legend. He was not immune to criminal involvement, They realized it was quite possible that Aaron Hernandez could have killed three people and he attempted to kill a fourth. But it brings us back to the question of why. We know why Aaron killed Odin Lloyd. We know why he tried to kill Alexander Bradley. But why did he kill Daniel de and Cefrio Furtado in the first place? Well, as the investigation continued, the public would learn that the drive-by murder was really just over a spilled drink and some attitude. Aaron was hot-headed, but this time it was deadly. Shockingly, at the end of it all, by the time April of 2017 came around, the murder of Odin Lloyd would be the only crime that Aaron was actually convicted of, being sentenced to life, but he was acquitted of the murders of Daniel de Abreu and Sefrio Furtado. Even more shockingly, it was only five days after Aaron was acquitted for the 2012 double homicide, where he was found hanging by a bedsheet in his cell at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Shirley, Massachusetts, at 27 years old. How did Aaron Hernandez go from a very sought after, prestigious, up and coming All American to a spree killer in just over a year? He was certainly known to be rough around the edges, when he needed to be, but that never made him a murderer or even capable of that kind of violence. At least, nobody in his life ever worried that he would become a murderer, even at his lowest points. Aaron would be intimidating, but he would never be that angry. There was no remotely understandable motive for Aaron to murder Daniel and Sefrio over a spilled drink, and then to murder Odin Lloyd to cover it up, and attempt to murder his friend Alex Bradley for the same reason. However, it would come out well after Aaron's suicide that he had severe stage three CTE. No matter how little sense anything he was doing made, no matter how good of a secret keeper that Odin Lloyd was if he did know something about the double homicide, no matter how irrational and unreasonable it is to kill two men over a spilt drink at a bar, it didn't matter. Nothing was making sense in Aaron's brain. He had significant damage to every area, but notably to the frontal lobe. It was significantly diseased with tau proteins, and his hippocampus was stunningly atrophied. There are many pictures of it on the internet. I suggest if you're interested in learning about the full scope of this disease you should take a look at it. I'll have it on my Instagram at cromopediapod, as well as on my website at cremopediapod.ca. If you look at the image of Aaron Hernandez's brain, the fluid-filled spaces are very, very large, and again, the area around them, the fornix, are quite small. In fact, the rest of the brain tissue is much smaller than it's supposed to be. Aaron's decision-making and reasoning were severely impaired. Aaron Hernandez was very far out of his mind. And his downfall would end up being one of the most famous cases, if not the most famous case of CTE, that has ever shocked the world. There's a general consensus that no matter how diseased Aaron's brain, or Chris Benoit's brain, or Jovan Belcher's brain was, There's no excuse for their actions. However, there absolutely were people in charge of them who knew they were getting hit in the head, who knew that was damaging and dangerous, and who reportedly didn't do anything about it for the sake of the game, the sport, and their income. In 2017, after Aaron's death, his family filed a $20 million federal lawsuit against the New England Patriots and the NFL, citing that both the team and the league were fully aware of the damage that repetitive hits like the ones Aaron was suffering from could do, and yet they failed to document, disclose, treat, or protect Aaron or really anybody else from that kind of damage. This is about as much as anyone could do because, Back then, and even now, despite knowing that damage of that sort to the brain can cause serious behavioral changes, it's simply not accurate to say that Aaron's actions were the result of his brain disease. It's not conclusive yet. CTE has never been causatively linked to an affinity for violence, although it has been to aggression, confusion, lack of inhibition, depression, and suicide. But Aaron Hernandez's case did put CTE on the global stage like it had never previously been. Not even the legacy of Chris Benoit or Jovan Belcher could create this many headlines in mainstream media about neuroscience, let alone how much of that media questioned how safe contact sports really are and if people should really even be playing them, which was extremely controversial given how deeply ingrained they are into American culture. The story of Aaron being a beloved star athlete turned homicidal captivated the entire world. There's even a Netflix documentary about it, although they seem to zero in on the fact that Aaron was struggling with his sexuality and suggest maybe that's why he committed the murders. I think it's possible he was frustrated about that, especially given the history of abuse in Aaron's childhood and how his father attempted to beat him into the only version of a man that was acceptable to him but I also think it's an attempt at redirection, an attempt at downplaying the role that Aaron's diseased brain may have played in his actions. It's certainly possible that Aaron had a lot of pent-up anger and resentment over his childhood and over his sexuality. It's possible he channeled that into his sport and his brain would suffer the previously unknown consequences of going that hard all the time. However, despite his story creating an uproar, certainly, since 2017, buzz about CTE has subsided. People still know of Aaron Hernandez, and there is the odd parent who I'm sure adamantly refuses to enroll their child in contact sports due to the increased awareness that we have as a society about the dangers of getting hit in the head so many times. But on a grand scale, nothing has been done. In fact, that lawsuit that Aaron Hernandez's family filed against the New England Patriots and the NFL, it was dropped. From my understanding, the lawsuit was dropped due to a logistical issue. However, the NFL and the New England Patriots were able to successfully void any accountability for what happened to Aaron Hernandez and the victims of his crimes. But on a larger scale, it seems like it's setting an unspoken precedent that if an athlete gets injured while playing the game, they should assume risk of doing so, and that even if the NFL or the team an athlete is playing for knows that they are being injured, they don't have a responsibility to take care of it, and they're not responsible for the actions of those players after the fact. It's certainly murky legal water, and I'm not entirely sure what my stance is on it, but as of right now, the league and the teams in it are not liable to do anything. Now in 2022, this might change. Because in 2021, it happened again. Another football player with a very diseased brain killed six people in South Carolina in April of 2021. Philip Adams was 32 years old last year, in 2021, and he was a retired NFL player who acted as both the cornerback and the defensive back, bouncing between the New England Patriots, the Seattle Seahawks, the Oakland Raiders, the Jets, and the Atlanta Falcons. On April 7th, 2021, after being retired from the NFL for six years, Philip Adams put on a dark hoodie, camouflage pants, a black motorcycle helmet and armed himself with two guns before exiting his parents' driveway in Rock Hill, South Carolina and murdering six people, including two children. Adams, on a whim, approached the home of Dr. Robert Leslie, an emergency room physician who dedicated his life to uplifting the quality of healthcare in his community. His estate-like home was shared with his wife, Barbara, and on the day that Philip Adams decided to intrude, the couple was watching two of their grandchildren. Philip Adams approached the Leslie residence and was met by two HVAC service technicians, James Lewis and Robert Shuck, who just happened to be on the property that day. Without warning, Philip shot James Lewis, killing him instantly, and then he also shot Robert Shook, who didn't die but instead then attempted to call for help while Adams continued to make his way into the house. First responders arrived within approximately 10 minutes, and by that time, Robert Leslie, his wife Barbara, and their two grandchildren, who were 5 and 9 years old, were all deceased. Robert Shook, who did survive the initial shooting, would die in hospital three days later on April 10th after multiple attempts at surgical interventions to save his life. Once police arrived, as they surveyed the scene, they realized that their perpetrator, who at that time they didn't know was Philip Adams, had long gone. Philip's parents, who were out that day, noticed a large police presence in Rock Hill, South Carolina, on their way back from some errands, but they thought nothing really of it. That was until the evening hours of April 7, 2021, when a special investigations unit donned in combat gear stormed the family home looking for Philip Adams. However, by the time police had made their way to his room in his parents' house, Philip had already turned his gun on himself and pulled the trigger. His father had to be told while he was in cuffs that his 32-year-old son was gone. After the initial chaos had settled, Philip's parents had to learn that their beloved son killed an entire family in addition to himself. They would also learn that this attack on the Leslie family was entirely random and unprovoked. Philip had absolutely no connection to them whatsoever. This was simply a random rampage. According to the York County Sheriff Kevin Tolson, his investigation turned up no evidence of Philip knowing the family at all. He was never a patient of Dr. Leslie's. He didn't even know the HVAC technicians. He'd never met Barbara Leslie, nothing. Phillip's family also learned that he was harboring more than 20 other weapons aside from the one he used on himself and the Leslie family. And finally, they learned that their son had been spiraling before their eyes and they had no idea how serious it was, as Philip Adams was found to be suffering from quote-unquote unusually severe CTE, especially for his age, being only 32, according to world-renowned expert on CTE, Dr. Anne McKee. Some reports say that Adams had stage 2 CTE, which is still quite serious, but Dr. McKee is quoted as saying that his brain resembled that of Aaron Hernandez, who, if you'll recall, was in stage 3 out of 4, late stage CTE. In the search for answers, Philip's family said that he did sustain quite a few head injuries during his time with the NFL and that it certainly wasn't just a matter of recovering and moving on. At only 32 years old, Philip Adams was struggling to sleep for many years, even well after retirement. He suffered with intense chronic pain and he complained to his family quite often about frequent lapses in memory. The York County coroner, Sabrina Gast, said that Adams had amphetamines in his system alongside an unregulated painkiller called Kratom that produces an opioid-like effect in larger doses. It's thought that not only was Philip Adams spiraling inside of his own mind and hoarding weapons, but he was also using experimental drugs to self-medicate as clearly he was being let down by those who were supposed to take care of him. Clearly the pain was becoming overwhelming. When searching for a real possible explanation as to why Philip, who was a previously very successful athlete, committed such a violent mass murder, Dr. Anne McKee was able to offer some insight after examining Philip's brain. She was quoted to the New York Times as saying this, severe frontal lobe pathology might have contributed to Adam's behavioral abnormalities, in addition to physical, psychiatric, and psychosocial factors. Theoretically, the combination of poor impulse control, paranoia, poor decision-making, emotional volatility, rage, and violent tendencies caused by frontal lobe damage could converge to lower an individual's threshold for homicide. Philip had reportedly been struggling to seek medical attention for his head injuries he acquired and the lingering symptoms, but he was allegedly dismissed by the NFL when he tried to handle it internally. There was something evidently wrong with Philip Adams leading up to his death. Part of the reason his medical claims were denied was due to his apparent inability to keep himself organized and travel alone to his appointments. I don't really understand why this was, but according to Dr. Anne McKee, there were likely clear inklings that Philip was developing cognitive and behavioral issues. Not only was he evidently struggling to keep himself together, but he had begun also hoarding weapons, experimenting with drugs, and clearly having violent thoughts. But Dr. McKee doesn't think that Philip just snapped on April 7th of 2021. To her, it appeared to be a cumulative impairment that resulted from increasing paranoia, worsening memory loss that never got attention, more impulsive behaviors, and living in constant frustration. To his family and friends, it might not have been entirely obvious exactly what was wrong with Adams. Maybe he didn't know that his brain injuries were causing all of these symptoms, but it was something, and this incident was not entirely out of the blue. In each case I spoke about today, there are confounding issues. With Chris Benoit, it was the use of steroids. Some people use that to explain why he did what he did. With Chauvin Belcher, it was a reported history of domestic violence by him on Cassandra Perkins, even though none of it was ever documented. People say that it wasn't a head injury that made Chauvin Belcher snap, but actually just the increasing toxicity of their relationship. Netflix will tell you that Aaron Hernandez committed murder because he was a closeted homosexual and had pent up frustration because he was shamed and embarrassed. For these reasons, the presence of confounding, it's impossible to conclusively say that the damage to each of these athletes' brains from repeated head trauma during their careers was responsible for their actions, whether that be alone or in addition to anything else. In general, it's really hard to use the scientific method to say that one thing causes another in the first place. The complexity of the human brain and the human life experience as a pro athlete, a young millionaire, a young parent, etc., it makes it even harder. However, the brains of all these men being absolutely mangled, showing incredible chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and all of them committing violent crimes before ending their own lives, is an intriguing coincidence at the very least. It's hard to imagine a stocky Aaron Hernandez giving someone a head start to escape after stabbing him and then being so frustrated and so pent up due to his sexuality that he would commit several murders within the span of a year after being drafted into the NFL, all over a couple of spilled drinks at a bar. I'm not the only one who thinks so either, as there's been a number of acclaimed scientists who have now dedicated their entire careers to understanding the true behavioral consequences of CTE. So far, they've found some pretty interesting results. In recent years, CTE has been linked to uncharacteristic depression, which is something we've discussed a little bit today. Depression is now considered to be a core feature of CTE, which may explain why so many young, talented, and successful, very wealthy professional athletes will commit suicide and throw their entire empires away. The list of names of people who've done that is so long that I couldn't even try to cover all of their stories in one episode. As we know, depression is a risk factor for suicide but it's the missing link between violence against oneself and violence against another in someone who has CTE that science is currently still working on. But what does this mean for sports? As of right now, unfortunately, it means nothing. The day after Jovan Belcher killed the mother of his child and himself, the NFL chose not to cancel the scheduled game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Carolina Panthers at the Arrowhead Stadium where Jovan shot himself in the parking lot. There was no acknowledgement of Jovan's absence either, and no acknowledgement of the dangers of brain trauma when his brain was examined a year after the tragedy. After Chris Benoit committed the horrific murders of himself, his wife, Nancy, and his son, Daniel, and it came out that he was suffering from staggering brain disease, the WWE refused to acknowledge it at all, or the contribution of his career in wrestling to his condition. Instead, the WWE simply removed all mentions of Benoit from every single platform or broadcast that they own, and banned all other entities from speaking about him. Their solution to absolve themselves from accountability or protecting their athletes, or at the very least addressing the damage done to his brain and the potential consequences of that, was to pretend that it never happened. The lawsuit against the New England Patriots and the NFL for refusing to acknowledge or protect Aaron Hernandez from the brain damage he evidently suffered was simply dropped. The family of Jovan Belcher also got in on a lawsuit, stating that he unknowingly sacrificed his brain and his life when he signed on to play pro football. These aren't the only lawsuits either. Former NFL quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Craig Morton, also filed a federal lawsuit back in 2013 against the league, citing that they were provided scientific evidence about the effect of concussions on the brain and still failed to act. There were also allegations that the NFL funded biased research to dismantle claims that concussions can cause long-term damage. The NFL would offer to settle this suit with thousands of professional past and present athletes who signed on, citing similar damages. But a settlement doesn't undo a culture of normalized brutality for sport, and it doesn't bring back the lives of Cassandra Perkins or Odin Lloyd. Ignoring the problem doesn't bring back seven-year-old Daniel Benoit. In fact, it further opens the door for more young, prospective athletes to sign their health away for a long shot at the American dream. Unfortunately, as long as professional sports leagues continue to neglect to protect their athletes from brain damage, there's always the chance that the success they work so hard for doesn't last, as their brain atrophies and clogs with diseased proteins, worsening with every single hit. And what does this mean for accountability and the law? As of right now, also nothing. All we can do is continue to educate ourselves about the dangers of playing contact sports. If you're gonna do it, understand what happens to the brain when you get hit in the head. Look out for yourself. And the more we talk about things like this, the more that these big companies are forced to take action and forced to protect their people and forced to protect their athletes like they should have been the entire time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Cramopedia podcast. I really appreciate your patience with this episode being a little bit late. As you may have seen in my Instagram post, when I was on vacation, I wasn't working on the show, and when I came back, I was recovering from COVID, so I certainly needed a little bit of time to catch up. But I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you, and especially the length of it. I don't do this length of episode very often, but... When I do, I really enjoy putting it out there. That's all from me, everybody. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you here next time.